Hi, I'm Jimmy from Los Angeles. Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is the Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio sweetheart, on the airways, it's the sound of young America. Maximum Fun, Maximum Fun, Maximum Fun. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Shayun Kuti, is the son of the legendary Nigerian band leader Fela Kuti. For the past few years, he's been leading his father's last band, Egypt 80. He just recorded his first record of original songs with the band. Here's a track from that album, Shayun Kuti and Fela's Egypt 80 performing Mosquito Song. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. My guest, Shayun Kuti, is uh, the son of the legendary Afrobeat pioneer Fela Kuti. Today he's leading Fela's last band, Egypt 80, in a tour of the United States and the world, and they've just released a brand new record, Shayun's first. Shayun, welcome to the Sound of Young America. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here as well. I'm excited to have you. So you're a very young man. In fact, you're, you're younger than I am. You're, what, 25 years old? Yeah. Um, but you started performing on stage when you were much, much younger, when you were like, what, eight years old? Yeah, I was eight. How did you, how did you end up? 1991. How did you end up on stage as an eight year old? Well, I just told my dad, uh, I said, you know, after I watched him in LA, it was a really good gig. Before that time, I've always been around the band. He used to always take us on tour with him, all the shows. 
you know, so I, I guess I just wanted to do the same thing. So I said to him, you know, I said, fella, I want to sing. He looks at me, he says, you want to sing? Can you sing? I said, yes, I can sing. He said, sing a song. I sang a song, and, you know, here I am today. <laughs> I can't imagine it was quite that easy. <laughs> it was. It's good when your dad is the boss. <laughs> um, you you grew up with um, uh, your dad had an enormous family, many children, and no six children, six children, but twenty seven wives. But twenty seven wives. So that's still pretty big. <laughs> yes, in terms of wives. <laughs> um, what, what was that? What was that like for for you as a kid, especially as the youngest? Like, was well, it unusual? I, I didn't grow up with all those women because by 1986 I was just three. My dad had divorced all his wives, you know, you know. So it was basically a single man with like a hundred girlfriends living in the house with him. <laughs> <laughs> well, that yeah. doesn't that doesn't sound any stranger, <laughs> you know. You know, but you know, there were no wives anymore. So basically, it was uh, you know, apart from the women, he had a lot of men living with him as well. You know, that worked in an organization because my dad believed in, you know, believed in uh, openness in the republic, the Kalakuta Republic. You know, so the gate was always open. If you want to come and stay there, all you ask you is what's your name, where are you from? Okay, give him a job. Somewhere. So so we had like we we're like five hundred of us living in the house. I, so, I I read in an interview that you um, that you called your dad Fela because he wanted to be more of a more of a peer to you than a traditional... Not just me, everybody. My dad believed in equality, so everybody called him fella. Not just me. Everybody. What, what was that like for you as a as a son to have a, a father who was... Um, you know, well, not I, just the most, not just the most famous person around, but also uh, wanted wanted everyone to be seen as equal, even his even his own kids. Yeah, because uh, we're, in his eyes, you know, in the way the house was as well, were equal with even the people living in the house. You know, so to me, it was just a way that molded me to understand that all men are important. You know, the equality, you know, the equality of men is not like a the you have the notion of equality. You know, it's not equality-ish. You know, you, I understand what it means that all men should be equal. You know, in terms of uh, the way they are looked after by the government. You know, by the head of the house, the country. You know, whatever. You know, so basically for me, and also living with all these people made me understand about life a lot quicker. You know, because basically I was exposed to a lot of things that, trust me, children shouldn't see those things. <laughs> you know, but it made me understand life. You know, I don't have any problem with it now as an adult. You know. I see it as a big, very important part of me that put me ahead of my peers in some certain aspects of life and helped me to develop quickly. Tell me, um, what was it like for you? Uh, what was it like for you to be a performer when you were when you were a kid? Was it did you did you always want to do it, or were there times when it was like a, when it was more of a burden? Well, as a kid, you know, there's sometimes you just want to go and play, but then there's practice. You know, oh, I will. <laughs> you know, that kind of shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I've always had that, uh, pardon my French, I've always loved performing, you know. For me, it was a f- way of having fun because all I had to do every Friday night was open the shows for my dad. You know, I used to sing a song before my dad came on stage. You know, so for me, it was just a way of staying up late every Friday night while all of my friends slept and I'd be in the club singing and after that I can rock till morning and all that. So, What was it like for you when... You had been performing for so many years with your with your dad when you when he got sick. Well, it was not about performing, man. He was my dad, you know. So when my dad got sick, you know, 
I wasn't thinking about performing. I was thinking about my dad is sick, you know. So uh, basically, I was more concerned about him as a, as losing my dad because you know my dad was more than a dad. You know, he was more of a friend, you know, companion. You know, we we're really close. You know, and he was someone you could go to for most things. You know, so it was a huge blow losing him from a personal level more than a musical level. How did it? How did it affect uh, what you wanted to do with your life? Had you decided that you wanted to be a musician when well, by the time you were a teenager? I was pretty much sure I was going to be a musician, but you know, I had other interests. I was good in school, and I was good in football as well. You know, uh, at the junior levels, I was doing really well. And I was thinking, oh, my, not football, real football, not American <laughs> football. <laughs> you know, so I was thinking of you know. I might be a footballer, you know, I had my music. So it was good to have options as a teenager, you know, but I always had music has always been my priority. So when my dad died, he just uh, uh, made me choose the obvious choice a lot quicker, you know. Why, why did it make you choose that choice? Well, because basically I didn't think it would be left to me to keep the band going, you know. I thought as my father's passing, after my father's passing, the family would put things in place to make sure that the band kept going, you know, a lot of great artists still have their band going, you know, and my dad, I was sure, was great enough, you know, to have his band alive, even if he was, he wasn't there physically, but a lot of people thought differently, I was surprised, you know, so I had to step in and said, okay, let's just keep doing this, you know, and the people, because the people that believed in the, you know, it's different to be a part of something and to believe in what you're a part of, you know. So the people that believe stayed, and here we are today. Let's talk a little bit about your current record and your current tour. This is the first record that you've put together of uh, music that you wrote. To this point, you had been playing largely your, your father's music. What made you feel like you were ready to strike out on your own? Well, my dad my dad has been dead now for 10 years, and I, I've been playing my own songs on stage live for about five years now. Four or five years, you know, so I think uh, it's very... It was just the right time for us right now. I was young, you know. Afrobeat is not just a genre of music that you can get into and sing about, but, but do whatever, you know, talk about bling bling and cars and girls, you know. Afrobeat is something deeper, you know. It's a lot, lot deeper, and um, it's a cause for the emancipation of the black race. That's a big struggle, you know. So I have to make sure that every time I performed, it's not a, it's not just entertainment. It's a statement about what's going on in Africa, what's going on in the lives of my people, what's going on with the continent, what's going on with our resources, you know. So basically, it's a, it's a struggle. So. And you dedicate yourself to a struggle. You don't do Afrobeat and start talking about all these trivial issues, you know. And you have to make sure that you dedicate yourself to the music because every Afrobeat album has to be like a classic. You know, people have to be able to listen to it for years and years because it's a message that has to keep going. Make them the Yaram. Ah! I'm a to teach the people new mentality. Make them 
More with Shayun Kuti after a break. It's the Sound of Young America from PRI Public Radio International. Production of the Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. In the early 60s, Mal Sharp and James P. Coyle put on the squarest suits they could find, picked up a briefcase with a hidden tape recorder, and hit the streets of San Francisco with some of the craziest schemes ever imagined by man. Want to know how a drunk sailor reacts when they tell him they'd like him to star in their verite film about a bank robbery, and that they'll be using real guns, and that no one but him will know it's a film, and that afterwards they'll all split the money? You might be surprised. Maximum Fun is proud to present Season 2 of Coil and Sharp, The Imposters. Real put-ons from the real streets of real 1960s San Francisco featuring James P. Coyle and Mal Sharp, a pair of real nuts. Search for Coil and Sharp in iTunes or visit MaximumFun.org. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Afrobeat band leader Sheun Kuti, the son of legendary Nigerian Afrobeat creator Fela Kuti. Your brother tours with Positive Force, a band that um, performs uh, Afrobeat, but not traditional Afrobeat, not necessarily uh, precisely in the in the style that your father played it or invented it. It's a it's a hybrid of that and, and many other influences from from around the world. Um, tell me about why you chose to keep this band playing um, what you might, I don't know what you might call it, a classic, a classic Afrobeat sound, a, a sound that, uh, that sounds like um, it could be, you know, you writing songs for your father's records in 1972 or 1982. Well, yeah, that's, that's, that's basically what I wanted to do because I've seen Afrobeat from when I was a kid as music for the future. You know, that's why I always understood that my dad was not like a huge commercial star, like selling millions of records and have all this money. I always understood as a kid was because it's not because the music wasn't good enough, it was because the world had not caught up yet. 
you know, this music was in front of us. You know, so basically, I feel that all other genres right now need to start putting some Afrobeat in their music. You know, funk needs to start. We need to have some funk Afrobeat, some soul Afrobeat. You know, but I don't believe that Afrobeat needs to add these genres. Afrobeat does not need to mix these genres in itself. It's already a complete. It's already there. It's the future. This is what all music is going to be like in 30 years. This is what everybody will want to do. Do you think that, um, did you ever think that you would become a, a, a pop musician? Pop, no. Afrobeat is not pop. But did you, I, I understand that. That's why, <laughs> that's why I asked the question. Did you ever think, did you ever think that you would be, because Afrobeat, while certainly uh, popular in Nigeria, is not the pop music yeah. of Nigeria in you know 2008 did you ever think that you would pursue a career as a, as a pop musician no never 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 how come uh but although i have a hip-hop band i'm producing back home yeah but i've never seen myself as someone who's gonna do uh pop music that's why you know how to make a decision you know what did i want to do you know so right now as an adult i'm not think i'm there's no way i'm thinking of but i don't even listen to pop songs <laughs> you know <laughs> you're kidding me really yeah I listen to hip hop, but I don't listen to Madonna, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Derek Iglesias, all these dudes, man. <laughs> Damn. Well, I don't listen to those either. <laughs> There's other popular music besides Madonna. I mean, think about what about what about hip hop, for example? Yeah, but hip hop, you know, is different. You know, you got a lot of real hip hop out there, and you got a lot of garbage as well. So. I tend to listen to people that are a bit real, you know, people that speak about their environment, what is happening to them. You know, I love to hear that, you know. Do you feel when you're making records that... Um, uh, that For example, you I don't listen to Nerd Pharrell. <laughs> oh, really? Not even that. I really like the new, I really like the new, uh, the new record where they go, all the girls standing in the line for the bathroom. You know that one? <laughs> I like that one a lot. You don't like that one at all. <laughs> <laughs> because basically, I feel that all black artists all over the world, in the diaspora, in Africa, everywhere, we have a, we all know where we're from, really, and we have an obligation to the continent. So I just feel that artists that have the chance to make a difference with their music, because it's not enough to go to Africa with a camera from CNN or Fox or whatever, you know, to get more credits to your humanity. You build a school, put some water, hey, I went to Africa. That's not it. Uh, that water, that school will not be properly maintained two years after you leave, man. You know, what What we can do is put it in our music, put this struggle in our music, even if it's one song, you know, it will last forever. Ten generations will hear that song, you know. They will understand what's happening now, you know. This is this is the records, this is the new records. In this age where we have CIA, Homeland Security, everywhere, these secret services all over the world, you know, trying to stop us from expressing ourselves almost all records are classified you never know what is happening with anything they just we have official reports you know everything is always conflicting each other there are bombs there are no bombs 9-11 was planned it was not planned you know we always have that you know so i just feel we artists since we can pull one on our cities and not be censored we still have that power we should make a very good use of it because if we keep doing this and not being socially relevant and conscious like they were in the 60s and 70s to keep our rights they're going to take away our freedom of this expression as well and then we're able to do shit don't bring that shit to me don't bring bullshit to africa don't bring that shit to me don't bring that 
get to see uh or have you since you put out this record had any chances to see impact from your music i mean talk to people who've been changed by it or or affected by it well no i've not met anybody but i'm sure i'm gonna probably win a lot of people over to our side with this cd yeah because i feel people right now in the world need to put humanity before the human you know we need to think about the general picture not the individual one Tell me when you record with uh, when you're recording with this band that has this you know 25 year to 20 30 year history depending on how you want to draw the timeline. Um, do you feel in some way like you're protecting something or you're uh, uh, defending something or it, 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 you know Afrobeat is the truth you know and. Uh, so basically, there's nothing to defend. You know, the truth speaks for itself. Uh, we just we believe in what we do, so we just have to do it. I'm not doing it because you know, I, you know, it will be it will lose its purpose if we're doing it because we're saying, oh, Afrobeat is the only music for revolution. No, I believe hip hop can be used for this as well. Anybody, even pop, you know, it's just the artist himself is what he wants to do. So I don't, when I record with my band, we share this mutual understanding, you know, and we always go from stage to studio. We never go from studio to stage. We always perform our songs live, you know, before we go to the studio because we always record live as well, you know, so it's just like a gig in the studio. You know, so um, I feel I'm good enough to, I feel I'm worth my place in the band right now. I, the whole band knows I'm worth my place. You know, so <laughs> what did you have no problem to, with that? What did you have to do to demonstrate that you were worth your spot in the band? Nothing. You just, I just had to keep growing and improving. You know, uh, writing my songs. You know, and um, playing with the band and making sure. You know, because they trust me a lot in the band. You know, it's a mutual thing. You know, they know whatever decision I make. Although it's a very democratic band. In fact, I'm only the leader when it comes to things like this. I have press, tax, all those things. Okay, yeah, yeah you're the leader, you know. <laughs> but, you know, when it comes to decision-making, we're very democratic. You know, whatever is going to happen is discussed, explained. Everybody puts in their ideas. You know, if they have anything, they, you know, everybody, they have anything they're not satisfied with, they can talk, say, okay, this is it, I don't have a problem here. And we walk out, you know, we work it out. Some of the guys that are in your band, I would imagine, knew your father even before you did, even before you were born. Do you ever hear anything about your dad uh, that's new when you're when no, you're out on the road? I probably heard all these stories. <laughs> Trust me, I have heard a lot of stories. Do any of the stories ever catch you by surprise? Well, you hear some stories, of course. You know, you're like, wow, he did that as well. You know, great guy. He was he was the greatest storyteller. Of all, you know, spending time with my dad was like reading a book. You know, he just tells you all these things that happened to him. You know, you laugh and you can't believe it. What do you remember the best of, of the things that he Okay, did? I'll tell you one involving okay. LA. 
Yeah. You know, my dad was in LA between 66, I think, 69 or something yeah. like that. And apparently over here, when you had, when you're driving, you get a ticket. Right. When you don't pay the ticket, it becomes a warrant. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So apparently he had nine warrants. <laughs> so, you know, so he was driving, you know, after a gig in the club, he was driving back home, drunk and tired. So he was sleeping on the wheel. So the car was doing this. So a cop pulled him over, you know, boom, pack the car and come down. So he's like, God, I'm dead today. They're going to find these nine warrants and I'm finished. You know, like it was like... So the guy called in and says, okay, what's your name? So he says, Fella Kuti. He says, Fellow Kuti? Yeah, so the guy goes, F-E-L-L-O-W-K-O-O-T-I. <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know. So the cop spelled the name wrong himself, you know. My dad was like, yeah, exactly, that's it. And was able to escape, you know. So that was weird to see him doing that. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Sheun Kuti. Of the songs on this uh, new record, wh- which one did you which one did you write first? Which one have you been performing the longest? Many things. Tell me about tell me about that song and and why you wrote it. Actually, many things is the first song I ever wrote. It was not really why I wrote it. It was when I you know in England I just got introduced to this uh, electronic way of making music. You know, MIDI. Right. Uh, yeah. Logic. Sure. Actually, I use Logic. You know, so we just let logic. So I, I was so fascinated when I got this uh, lesson from school and everything. I just went straight to the shop, brought my card, and bought a complete set. You know, <laughs> took it home and started. You know, so when I played on the piano, the first thing I played was da 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 how did the how did the lyrics come in? Well, you know, after I'd finished doing the groove, you know, I did the groove and I was like, wow, sounds groovy, you know, but it was a bit melancholy, you know, so I said, well, let me do it, let me make the lyrics satirical, you know, talk about things like, uh, things that are funny, but are not supposed to be happening, but you can't believe they're happening, so that's why they're funny, you know, so that's what I did. Do you have a favorite song on this no, album? No, they're all my kids, you know. You can't love one more than the other. No, if you had to have, if you were no, forced to pick a favorite. You can't pick a if favorite. you picked one at random, which one would it be? I wouldn't pick one. There's no way to pick. <laughs> How would I know if I actually picked it at random, you know? This song about the stupid yeah, yeah, leaders we'll get for Africa here. We don't respect human life at all. So, and we know say these people that they be our papa, that they be our mama. So we got to beg them, me. Some more beg them to get bag. You've got a record about oil in, in Nigeria on uh, this new album. It's um, uh, Nigeria is one of the most oil-rich countries in the world, and particularly one of the most oil-rich countries in the world outside of the Middle East. Um, but obviously that wealth has not been equally distributed among the people of Nigeria. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, why you chose that topic to, to write about. Well, now oil really is not about oil alone. It's about everything that happens in Africa generally. Now oil is a parable because in my language, Yoruba, there's a parable that says, Eponimoru, Oniyogimabatemije, which means it's oil that I'm selling. Firewood seller, please don't ruin my life, my business. You know, because if I'm selling oil, because you know, in Africa, our shops are mobile. You carry your oil on your head. You sell firewood, you carry it on your head, and you call, hey, 
firewood, firewood, oil, oil, you know, but this is cooking oil, Ekpo, is red oil, palm oil, you know, so uh, if you collide with a firewood seller, he will pick up his firewood, but your oil is gone. So actually, the song is a parable about the importance of human lives, begging the African leaders sarcastically to please respect our lives in Africa. You know, that's what the song is about. lot of kind of biting humor in your music and in your father's music tell me tell me why that is well that's a cutie thing <laughs> we are very very sarcastic in my family i'm telling you if you're among like three of us <laughs> half the time our jokes are filled with just dripping with sarcasm <laughs> you know so i feel that it's just it's just a, it's just something you learn in the house as a kid you know like, for example, I was running into my father's room one day, you know. I wanted to go see him for something. So I was really excited. And I ran in, and I slipped and fell down. You know, so he goes, what's wrong with you, boy? You want to ruin my carpet? You know. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So that, that's, that's like a... <laughs> That's a typical joke in my house. Well, Shayon, I thank you so much for taking the time to be on The Sound of Young America. It was so fun to have you. Thank you very much for having me as well. In the interview sense of the word, have Another Sound of Young America program in the books. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones, theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself, interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. The show is edited by Nick White. My dog's name is Coco the Dog. 
Chris Bowman from Canada is our intern. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org. And if you would like to send me an email, you always can. You're always welcome to. Jesse, J-E-S-S-E at MaximumFun.org. It's gotten to the point where I don't always uh, reply to every single one. Uh, Sometimes I forget. But I try to. You know, I do my best. And I do read all of them. I promise. Jesse at MaximumFun.org. If you visit our website, you'll find our blog, our other shows, all that good crap. Uh, We'll see you next time on The Sound of Young America.